Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White and welcome to episode 13 of the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast. This is the podcast in which I talk with food entrepreneurs, innovators and startups to get behind the scenes and find out what they're doing to build their business and make a mark in the Australian food industry. And in the following aftertaste section, if you stick around, I give you a brief insight, learning or secret of success that I've gleaned from my guest's experience that just might help you in your own job or business. Today, I'm talking with Grant Collins. He's a mixologist and founder of Gin Lane in Sydney. In this episode, you'll hear how Grant ditched his passion for personal training early on to be pulled into the exciting and creative world of hospitality in which he's worked as a bartender, bar manager, mixologist, drinks advisor, boutique consultant, and now bar owner. You'll hear how, having gained extensive bar management experience in the US and UK, Grant moved to Australia with his future wife and drove the success of award-winning bars in first-class hotels across Australia. That was before he wandered down a street in Chippendale, Sydney, and fell in love with an old 1820s terrace house, which inspired him to start his own bar called Gin Lane. Plus, in this episode, you'll learn about the power of virtual entertainment. That is, leveraging food and beverages that are visually fun or inventive, colourful on social media and how you can offer a multi-sensorial experience that people will pay more for. So welcome to the podcast, Grant. Thank you very much for having me. So it's always good for our listeners if you first set the scene for us and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and a little bit about your business. Sure. So my name's uh, Grant Collins. I'm a drinks creator, mixologist, slash spiritual advisor, I suppose, uh, of sorts. Um, and I also own and run Gin Lane in Chippendale, which is a small sort of boutique gin bar. And Grant, tell us how you become a mixologist and how that all started. Because I think I was, I was reading a bit about you and that wasn't your first career preference, was it? <laughs> no, it's not really what my parents had uh, lined up for me. Um, when I left college, that's for sure. I was pretty sporty at school. I went to college in Cornwall in South uh, West England um, and did a degree in sports science. So I wanted to be a fitness instructor, wanted to be a physio. Um, yeah, that was that was the line of work that I was going into. And I just decided to do a bit of traveling before I sort of settled down and, and got back into the industry. Um, took a bit of time out and went to the States traveled around there and worked in a few bars. And so, um, yeah, just sort of fell into the hospitality industry. I went back to London and decided that was uh, the career for me, much to my parents' demise, I suppose. (laughs) And apart from obviously, you know, being young and hitting the bar seat and that being a very cool hit place to be, what, what really made you move from that first passion from fitness into hospitality? I mean, what was the attraction for you? really honest it was just a lot more fun um i really enjoyed the fitness industry but 
I, I mean, the bar industry was just dynamic. It was fresh. It was exciting. So, so I was sort of quite late into it. I started in the industry at 25. Uh, the money was better. <laughs> the tips in America were amazing. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose I discovered that I was probably a bit more creative than I thought. You know, when I got to the stage of writing cocktail lists and getting a free reign to create, um, I suppose all the dots aligned. That was something I decided I really wanted to, to stay in and an industry I wanted to stay in. And when you're in that industry and you are starting out, do you learn from just literally being in there and learning from other bartenders or do you have to go to a formal school? Well, that's a really good question, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose I, I sort of did the old school progression path, which is a very American style of hospitality or bartending where they they like their manager to do absolutely everything. So I started off mopping floors, polishing glasses, you know, filling up the juices, cutting fruits, um, you know, learn every sort of aspect of that side of the business. Um, and then I sort of progressed to being a bartender and making drinks. Uh, and then when I went back to the to the UK, back to London, I sort of picked up off on that. Uh, and then actually just started as a bartender, just making drinks, creating drinks. Uh, at that stage, the bar manager normally writes the list, so I didn't have that sort of creative outlet. But yeah, they, um, I did quite well and was pretty successful. Won a few cocktail competitions, which got me, I suppose, up to bar supervisor and then worked through to, to bar manager. And uh, then I was running three quite large bars, two in London and one in Birmingham. So I was traveling between the, the three of them, uh, putting the list together, working with suppliers, doing a lot of photo shoots, doing a lot of marketing, a lot of PR as well. And that's how it all got rolling, I suppose, in, in, in London. And let's talk about that aspect you just mentioned then about the love of the creativity, because that obviously drew you into the industry and was the part of the job you really relished. What drives that creativity and how do you get your inspiration for creating new cocktails and mixers? Again, it's something I didn't really realize that was inside me until this sort of opportunity came up and I started writing lists. As far as um, where I got the inspiration from, trends move so quickly, um, the same as fashion, I suppose. When I first started out, it was you know, the, the rebirth of the classic cocktails. So it was all about you know, the perfect martinis or the perfect Negronis, Manhattans. You know, there was a big rebirth of that back in the early 2000s. Nowadays, I like to try and sort of set trends. Obviously, you get um, inspiration by many. I suppose pastry chefs in restaurants, I draw a lot of inspiration from them, the way that they sort of bind flavours together and the way that they layer flavours and deconstruct flavours. I'm, I'm really sort of uh, amazed by some of the stuff the pastry chefs do. Sometimes we go to a restaurant and just have six desserts just so we can try a different range of desserts. Yeah, I can imagine how that would be really inspiring, looking towards sweets and desserts and pastries. Let's talk now about how you made your shift then from managing, you know, very big, large, multiple bars for other people to that step of wanting to own and set up and create your own in Sydney. Firstly, how did you do that move from the UK to Australia? What prompted that? (laughs) Yeah, good question. Um, I was waiting for that one to pop up. Um, I suppose I, I went backpacking in Australia when I was there bit younger, sort of in my late teens, um, did a bit of travelling, loved the country, absolutely fell head over heels for Australia, but, you know, I was just on a on a travel visa, so I went back to the UK, and again, in one of the um, establishments I was working in, I met a young lady, and she happened to be from Sydney, 
So we lived together in uh, London. And then um, she decided that uh, she'd had enough of, of London and wanted to move back to Sydney. And did I want to come? That was sort of the invitation that I was waiting for, hoping for. And uh, yeah, I suppose fast forward 10, 15 years, we're now married. And um, that's how I ended up in Sydney, Australia. Um, I suppose my first actual job in Australia was uh, for W Hotels for Starwood. I went in as their opening bar manager down in Woolloomooloo in Sydney when they opened. That was very quiet to start off with and we built a huge business there with a very high profile. We had a lot of international celebrities who stayed in the hotel and used to love drinking cocktails. So we created a really big cocktail culture there and went on to open some really big hotels and successful bars um, around Sydney and also down in Melbourne, up in Brisbane as well. So the opportunity arose just over a year ago in Chippendale in Sydney with uh, this amazing little building that I just fell in love with as soon as I walked into it. It's an old terraced house from 1820 and it used to be where the families used to live of the brewers who um, used to work in the brewery on the old sites as well. As soon as I walked in, it just felt like an old gin palace back in the 17th century in London. So that, that was really how it all started. Um, met with uh, Dr. Stanley Quick, the owner of the street, and uh, uh, we sort of did a six-month trial together to see how we worked. Things went extremely well. And um, here we are, still flying along, and uh, business is good. So how long have you been running that now? How long has Gin Lane in Sydney been open? We rebranded about 10 months ago. So um, we're still relatively new and we got uh, very, very busy just before Christmas. So um, we had to batten down the hatches and uh, you know, transition pretty quickly. Are you having to, thinking back to your earlier days and your love of being behind the bar, are you getting behind the bar or are you up at the senior level and just having to manage the staff and the, the pays and all the, sort of the, the admin stuff instead? Yeah, for sure. I'm just wherever I'm needed in the business, um, especially recently we've been so busy uh, being behind the bar. Um, a lot. Uh, really, as far as when we're, we're doing new lists and we're doing more sort of creative processes, I'm not behind the bar so much. I spend a lot of time uh, creating, mapping out uh, menus, uh, getting samples of new flavours or, or seasonal um, fruit. Got a bit of a science lab at home set up. I've got a something called a rotor vapor, which is something that they use in um, chemistry classes or a lot of laboratories use them as well. What they do is they redistill flavours. So you can make uh, a tincture or an alcoholic flavour out of almost anything. So we, we use a lot of the appliance of science, I suppose, in, in, in building some of the lists. So when I'm going through that phase, definitely not behind the bar so much, but I'm on site quite a bit and in the venue quite a bit. So I love meeting the guests and I, I love getting the feedback and it's really the best way to know your business. Sounds like you're still very much into the drinks creation space. Let's talk about the drinks themselves. I've had a little peruse on your Gin Lane uh, website and I've seen some pretty amazing looking gin concoctions on there and I, <laughs> I would love you to talk us through them. Is there one you're the most proud of or the one that you kind of think that is our signature drink? It's like trying to ask to pick your favourite child, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, I really like the simplicity of some of the classics. You can make a really bad martini um, or you can make a really good martini just by doing a couple of simple little tweaks in your technique. And I just love the fact that you can alter so drastically the flavour of the drink, which is so simple. I mean, basically making a gin or vodka martini is, is two ingredients, ice, and that's, that's it, and then you garnish. But by 
you know, altering your technique a tiny bit, you can alter the temperature, which alters the flavor. So I love the simplicity and, and sort of going back to basics of building a classic, such as a martini or, or a Negroni. So I suppose that would be my first pick. Um, secondly, more experiential drinks, more fun drinks, which is quite a large part of Gin Lane and people come there for experiential drinks. I'd have to say the gunpowder plot, really, just because that was something I created from memory, going back to when I was a, I was a kid. Uh, 5th of November in the UK is bonfire night, and I sort of built a drink around bonfire night. And every time we serve it, it still reminds me of bonfire night when I was a kid. So I suppose that would probably have to be um, definitely in the top few. And Grant, can you describe that drink for us? Because I think some of the ones you would see on your website, or the ones that are certainly getting a lot of media attention and press, are the ones that seem these theatrical drinks that really kind of tick that box in terms of being Insta-worthy. And as you say, they invoke a whole experience. What is the gunpowder plot and how does it present? Yes, I suppose, first of all, it's really important when you're doing experiential drinks not to make it a gimmick. So what we try and do is we actually work backwards. So create the drink first and then create the experience afterwards and make sure the experience is actually part of the drink. Um, For instance, 80% of your taste is actually through your nose. So we play on that a lot with garnishes, with scents. Um, We put sprays and mists on a lot of drinks. So we're actually activating your senses before you even go to drink the drink. So there's a lot of thought process that goes into these drinks i think a lot of people just look at them and go oh they just pour liquid nitrogen over drinks or they just put dry ice in that or they just freeze that there's, there's a lot more uh behind the scenes that goes into it and especially with with the gunpowder plots i went back you know when i was stood around a bonfire when i was a kid probably seven eight nine ten my parents used to take me every year there it used to be uh, very exciting with lots of fireworks and you know lots of burning effigies of guy fox and really, that was the inspiration I drew. So first of all, it was obviously base English ingredient, which was, you might better guess it, gin, of course. Um, we actually infuse the gin with gunpowder tea, which um, obviously is a play on the gunpowder plot. Uh, but gunpowder tea is very similar to green tea. Uh, it's quite stringent um, and goes really well with um, all the botanicals in gin. And then I was looking around for something else, which around that time I used to sort of have when I was a kid and I used to drink a, a little sort of fizzy drink called dandelion and burdock um, I managed to find a dandelion and burdock bitters which again is quite herba- herbaceous uh, dandelion and burdock are two wild flowers that grow in the UK and they add a really sort of nice flavour to the botanicals of the gin and also to the gunpowder tea so obviously I wasn't going to put a fizzy drink in there but that tied in quite well because it had that herbaceousness and depth of flavour I was looking for, but still sort of obviously pushed the memory buttons for when I was a kid. So that tied in quite well. We obviously I needed to add a bit of depth and a bit of spice in there. So we make a house-made spice syrup. Uh, we break down star anise, a bit of cumin, a bit of cinnamon bark and clove. Um, we make that into a syrup and reduce it. So that goes into there as well to give it that deep sort of spiciness. Then we use cold-pressed citrus juice in there to balance it out. Um, and then I couldn't get the balance of the drink quite right. Um, I was needing something to bind all those flavours together and give it a bit of length. So I tried lots of different vermouths, um, and eventually the best thing that worked was an Italian digestive called Fernabranca. It's got a slight peppermint flavour to it, uh, but again, the herbaceousness ties in with all those other flavours. So that was just the missing link. 
And actually took me about two, three months of trying everything I possibly could to find that missing link. And Fernabranca was it. So we, we, we dropped that in. Uh, sent it all up, poured into a glass, garnish it with a lemon twist. Um, and then we smoke it with a gunpowder tea smoke. So we use a smoke gun. We fill a cloche with, with tea smoke. Uh, and then we sit it on a bed of leaves, a bit of a playback to the bonfires and bonfire nights. Then we present it in front of the guest and uh, release the tea smoke. Again, going back to the 80% of your taste is through your nose, so that you smell it and it gets your mouth watering and sort of heightens your senses. Uh, and then it adds a nice layer of smoke on top of the drink as well. So by the time it's ready to drink, it's got a really nice light smoked flavour on the top, which binds with everything else. And that's the gunpowder plot. If all this is making you feel thirsty, well, it's time for a quick break now. When you come back, you'll hear how Grant Collins took his love of creating classic and experiential cocktails to build up his own bar, Gin Lane in Sydney, and is embracing the booming gin revival. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Center can help. It has cutting edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcenter.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Grant Collins, a mixologist and founder of the Gin Lane Bar in Sydney. You've heard of Grant's love of classic cocktail making and his fastidious attention to detail in the creation of experiential cocktails that fuse unique flavors with a drinking experience to ignite all your senses. And you heard how Grant fell in love with an old 1820s terrace house in Chippendale, which he turned into his own bar called Gin Lane. And so I asked Grant why of all the different spirits he could have chosen, why did he choose gin to build his business on? Definitely the building. You know, first time I walked into the building, I really just thought of a gin palace going back to the the 17th century. Gin originated in Holland. Uh, back in the 16th century, but transitioned over to, to the UK in the 17th century when the British soldiers who were fighting in Holland came back to the UK and there was no such thing as Geneva. So they started distilling gin in London. That was the start of London dry gin. And off the back of that, gin palaces popped up everywhere. Um, around that time, there was three, 4,000 just in London. So people making cheap bathtub gin and literally selling it out the back window. But they were small sort of intimate houses with a lot of character where people get together to drink gin. And that was the first thing I thought of when I walked into Gin Lane. I just walked in, I thought, my Lord, this obviously had the history side. It's pretty well 100 years old, just over. It definitely had that feel and that character. And I suppose really that's why for me gin was the only spirit really that would fit in there. And I hear on the grapevine that we are actually in the midst of a craft gin revival at the moment. Why do you think that is? Or do you even believe that's true? 
Oh, 100% believe that's true. Jim started pushing forward, I suppose, sales-wise six, seven years ago, um, and the industry has, has definitely flourished. I think the reason is there's a lot of myths around gin. Um, a lot of people, you know, think of it possibly as a depressant um, and something which has got a bit of a bad reputation, which again goes back to the start of gin, the history of gin in the 17th century, where it was hugely abused. And they tried to put on a prohibition in the UK and then there was gin riots. And But, you know, there's no basis to that. Um, gin is actually vodka. And it's exactly the same. It's a neutral grain spirit. But what makes gin gin is juniper um, and botanicals. And we get a lot of guests coming in who are not that keen on gin. And I suppose we really embrace those guests because we break down those myths um, and we offer them a gin which is potentially light in juniper, which is the bitterness which maybe the younger palate doesn't really find too attractive. And then, you know, maybe have more herbs and, and spices in there as well, less of the juniper. So we guide people into what sort of gin we think works for them, um, for a gin and tonic, and then obviously some of our cocktails. So I suppose we're, without realising it, we're breaking down the barriers by people who would never think to drink gin, um, being attracted maybe on social media to start with by some of these drinks, and then coming in and trying them, and, and lo and behold, they absolutely love them. Um, and gin is not uh, necessarily what they thought. It's a great thing because, as you say, maybe a lot of people haven't considered it or are still are still to really get into the gin movement. So it's it's great to know there are the more easy drinking options that and the you catering for those. You mentioned there just briefly, Grant, about social media, and we do know the power of visuals, particularly around you know beautiful looking drinks and cocktails and and that whole industry. How are you using social media to drive the awareness and, and get customers into your store? Social media is hugely important. But um, it's really important, I suppose, to to make sure that the drinks are presented as you see them. So we, we focus a lot on, on quality and presentation of, of the drinks as well. It's important that the classics don't get left behind. Uh, maybe they don't have, have as many bells and whistles as some of the more experiential ones. Um, but it's important that they have a place in every great bar as well. So we try and make sure that we balance it, you know, presenting the classics as well. Um, but of course, people are drawn to colours, people are drawn to smoke, people are drawn to flame. Um, and we do play on that, I suppose, to some extent. For instance, we try and use a lot of red whenever we can, uh, whether that's red and rose petal or, you know, maybe a red garnish. Uh, your brain is naturally attracted to red and our drinks which have got splashes of red in them always rate higher than drinks that don't. So yeah, we, we definitely play on that to the same extent that and we're presenting the drink to the guest, um, you know, the colour that's in there excites the brain. To some extent, it actually gets your gastric juices flowing, your mouth starts watering. So you're already enjoying the drink before you've gone to drink it because your brain is engaged. And then if we can add a smell on that too, before you've even gone to drink it, then you've really got a full experiential package there. Social media is hugely important in that extent, knowing you know, how to portray the drinks in, in, in the best way we can, whether that's through glassware, whether that's through colour, whether that's using a bit of experiential smoke or, or flame. It's all extremely important. 
Yeah, and I noticed too, as you said, um, capturing that experience seems to be something you do very well on, on your Facebook page, for example. I saw a video of their cocktail actually being poured and I think it was a, a Tanqueray pressed lavender and citrus with the homemade spice syrup and the, someone had their mobile phone up and they were lighting up the drink and you could just see almost like this electric purple colour bloom and peak as they were mixing it. Yeah, that's actually um, one of our servers. We had them carry mobile phones to light up one specific drink. So they put the, the light on their mobile phone and we, as they pour it, um, obviously the colour changes. So that really sort of showcases that. And obviously, as you said, it makes a great video as well. Um, that's an Indonesian uh, butterfly tea syrup, which when you hit it with citrus, it completely changes colour. It goes quite well with gin as well. It's a little bitter. So if you put that with tonic and then obviously a bit of citrus, not only do you get a really well-balanced drink, it tastes great, but it looks pretty cool too. It looks beautiful. And I've heard you mention there, Grant, so inspiration from tea blends and infusions, inspiration from desserts. I saw you run a Negroni night on Wednesdays and the option is you can choose from your Negroni whether you'd like it classic or whether you'd like it a popcorn, a hibiscus or a truffle one. So you're even dipping into snacking like popcorn for inspiration. <laughs> uh, I mean, again, we're, we're just trying to have a bit of fun. You know, I think fun is a huge part of bars or socialising. Sometimes you go to some bars that uh, are a bit sort of staid and, you know, the bartender almost tells you what to drink or what you should be drinking, what's on trend. We like to guide people, but we also like people to have fun. I mean, you know, if, if you've been at work all day and had a tough day at the office, you know, we, would, we don't want to come in and lecture you about what to drink. But yeah, within the granny nights, it's been a huge success. And uh, I think over 200 Negronis last Wednesday. But trying to draw in a guest who might never have had a Negroni, or a Negroni is maybe a bit too much for them. It's a bit too bitter. It's a bit too overpowering. We just try and sort of soften it a tiny bit. So with the popcorn, we actually uh, melt down the popcorn and then wash it through the gin. And then we mix that into the Negroni. And yeah, with the popcorn Negroni, for instance, there's three steps which we explain to our guests. Uh, we ask the guests to pick up the candied orange, bite into it, make sure they get a tiny bit of sea salt, and then drop into the popcorn, eat some of the popcorn, then drink the drink. So what we're actually doing, we're creating an experiential drink for the guests and a bit of fun, but we're actually putting layers of flavour on their palate to accentuate the Negroni. I know we're recording this at only like 11 a.m. in the morning, but I'm really craving a Negroni now. Making <laughs> <laughs> myself thirsty. So you also mentioned there about guiding people and just even hearing you talk, Grant, there's so much more to this. You, you really do want people to pause and appreciate the layering of the flavors and the experience they're tasting rather than just, you know, slamming that drink down. How important are things like the gin school you're running and, and giving people a bit more of an education around that experience? Well, the gin school is an awesome platform. It gives us a platform to have these discussions with members of the public um, and talk about some of the intricacies of, of, of what we do. Again, as well as not being too dry and making sure it's interactive, they have fun and to get behind the bar and, and, and make, mix up a few drinks uh, with us as well. So it's a sort of fun environment, but also educational as well. Is that a, is that a popular way of um, bringing people in the door as well? Are people interested in knowing that much about it? Yeah, they might be drawn in because they like gin or they like a gin and tonic. But then once we start talking about the history of Chippendale, we, we talk about the history of the house that they're stood in. Uh, we talk about the history of gin 
And then all of a sudden it ties together and, you know, maybe they have a light bulb moment, which, by the way, is one of our most popular drinks. <laughs> um, we can talk about that one later. Uh, but everything starts making sense. All of a sudden they've come to Jin Lane. They've, you know, been there three, four times. They've brought friends back. They've really enjoyed the experience. Um, but not really knowing everything that we do to create that experience. So Jin School gives us that platform to, to do that. And no, we're not going to talk about the light bulb moment later. We're going to talk about it right now because <laughs> this podcast, we love all things innovation and light bulb moment feels like it's bang on spec for that. Apart from it literally being in a light bulb, tell us about the light bulb moment. Um, I just wanted something really, I've been, I've been doing a lot of classic cocktails at the time. And I just wanted something fun, which literally was going to quite literally blow up in your face, I suppose, but in a safe way. So I was trying to look for the right vessel. Um, yeah, I found this reinforced light bulb, which was absolutely perfect because I wanted to absolutely charge it with liquid nitrogen. Um, so you've got to have the right glassware, the right vessel to better do that. And then it was just getting something which looked and tasted great. So we, we basically twisted up a, a really nice Long Island iced tea that was fresh mint. It's got some fresh pink peach in there as well. Again, we used the butterfly pea to give it that beautiful blue tinge. And then on the top, we actually put a rose essence. And then once we spray that over the top, then we charge it with liquid nitrogen. And liquid nitrogen vaporizes the rose. So it lets off this amazing scent, which we put right under the guest's nose, which, again, setting you know the palate up for, for the taste and the flavor profile in the drink as well. Um, and it actually creates a tiny bit of a sorbet on the top of the drink as well, which is a bit of an added, uh, added bonus, but hugely popular, yeah. So people uh, want to come in, you know, just a fun drink. That's often the one they go for. Yeah, it looks like it really would um, prompt a moment of inspiration as you were drinking it. What's the bar scene? How would you compare it, seeing you've worked in the US and the UK and, and Australia more recently? Are one of those markets, do we sort of follow the, any of those other markets or where do we sort of sit? That's a really good question. When, when I first came to Australia, it was incredibly behind, which I was quite shocked about because it was just post-Olympics. Um, and I really thought the bar scene would be, would be charging, but there was, there was very little, which was mainly due to legislation. Um, obviously, small bars were something which wasn't even on the radar in Sydney at the time, maybe Melbourne, but definitely not in Sydney. I think legislation changed in 2010 and then everything in Sydney and New South Wales changed for the better. Um, but I suppose I was one of the first uh, to come over here from, from the UK to work in bars and, you know, to transition a lot of the international experience, which I've learned in the US and in the UK to Australia. Um, now there's, there's a lot of international guys working in Australia, which in turn pushes the scene. Uh, it's it's an amazing level at the moment. Probably looking back in 2002, the spirits you could get were a long way behind. You can create what you really wanted to create. You, you couldn't really get any of the things which I was used to using in the UK. Uh, those days are gone. You can get absolutely everything here now. So that's really helped as well. Uh, glassware was another thing. Obviously, it's a lot easier to order online now than it was, you know, 10, 14, 15 years ago. So glassware has become a lot more accessible. And I'd say when I left the UK, London was definitely number one in the world, probably in the bar scene, closely followed by, I suppose, New York just behind it. I'd say Sydney, um, Melbourne, 
Australia as a whole is definitely up there with, with London and, and New York for sure. It, it, it's definitely neck and neck. There's so much talent here with young bartenders coming through. There's so much overseas talent. Uh, the creativity, I've, I've never seen anything like it it's, since I've been here. It, it really drives me every day. That's so encouraging to hear because it is such a booming growth industry. So it's great to hear that, you know, we're, we're being competitive and, and kind of world best standard in that area. Now, also, I, we haven't touched on this, but I, I think you alluded to it a little bit there, Grant. If there are bars out there who are not so great, you do also offer a consulting service. Is that to help lift that standard? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we go in and we spot analysis on, on businesses, whether it's small, large, you know, international resorts, hotels. Um, if someone's got an issue with their business, we, we sort of go in there and try and find out the root of the problem. Or we go into businesses and help set up international hotel bars uh, and restaurants as well. So, yeah, we've, we've got a bit of a 360, I suppose, offering. Um, we design bars. Uh, we work with uh, architects and designers to design venues. I've been fortunate enough to travel to Japan and open, you know, boutique hotels in Korea, Bali, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Thailand. Yeah, it's it's, it's been a great sort of journey over the last ten or twelve years, as well as, as you said, uh, running and, and owning Jim Lane as well. And now, if you have made anyone as thirsty as you've made me, let's see, where can we send them to go to Gin Lane first? Okay, so there's a precinct in Chippendale, um, which is in the inner west of Sydney. It's called Kensington Street, which is an amazing strip. Um, there's something for everybody there, from Spice Alley, which is casual dining Asian street food, to Olio, which is you know, great fine dining Italian. Um, east side kitchen and grill which is a american asian fusion um, you've got a fantastic boutique hotel there called the old claire and along that street number 16 you'll find a little cute terraced house uh, originally from 1810 and uh, that's where you'll find jim lane and for those who maybe on the business side would like to get in contact with you and um, tap you on the shoulder for a little bit of help what's the best way they can uh, find out about you grant and get in touch with you Probably hit me up via email. So grants at ginlanesydney.com.au or grantatbarsolutions.com.au. Fantastic. Well, it's that time. Now I'm totally pushing aside my cup of coffee and I'm, I'm going to go make myself something stronger after this call. Thank you so much, Grant. It's been fantastic talking to you today. I've learned a lot. Uh, thank you for sharing your wonderful story with us. No problem at all. Absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Grant Collins of Gin Lane and reflect on an insight from his mixology journey as a bartender, bar manager, drinks consultant, and more recently, bar owner. And there are so many big themes that come to mind from Grant's experiences, like the importance of harnessing and expressing your creativity in the products you make, or taking advantage of cross-category blurring to leverage new food and flavor trends. But today, I've decided to talk about something which I think Grant excels at with his experiential cocktails at Gin Lane, and that is the benefit of creating and offering multisensorial product experiences. 
And this topic really touches on how food and beverages have become social currency, thanks to how we share and discuss them online, and how you could shift your business or product from a standard transactional consumption model to offer a more value-added, multi-sensorial experience that people will pay more for. Now, Grant was surprised in his early days of bartending just how much the industry tapped into and encouraged his creative side, especially in the creation of a drinks menu and new cocktails. Once he had mastered the classics, how to make that perfect Negroni or Martini, for example, he then went on to use this knowledge to build what he calls experiential cocktails. Now, these cocktails, like Gin Lane's best-selling light bulb, they ignite all your senses with their layered flavors, impactful colors, evocative scents, and visually impactful delivery. And these cocktails are featured on Gin Lane's website, Facebook page, Instagram, and other social media channels. So you can be intrigued and delighted before you even set a foot in the door of the Gin Lane bar. In doing this, I believe Grant is harnessing the power of virtual entertainment, that is, leveraging food and beverages that are visually fun, inventive, and colourful on social media. And this is a very effective way to attract customers. In fact, a 2017 Innova Market Insights consumer study found that one in 10 Australians are influenced by social media to purchase a food or beverage. And unsurprisingly, this social media influence does have an age skew, with 18 to 24-year-olds being five times more likely to share photos of their food online than people aged over 55 years. It's also really evident on Instagram, with hashtag food currently being the 24th most used hashtag overall. And don't even get me started on how lost you can get when wading through the 919,000 bright green hashtag photos of hashtag avocado toast. So how can you make the most of virtual entertainment? Well, because food is naturally social, communal and visual, social media has a tremendous influence on global food consumption. It makes food and drinks more visibly accessible from around the world. And foods that are creative, inventive or unconventional are highly desirable. That's not just because they satisfy a general sense of neophilia, that is, our tendency to love anything novel or new, but also because those foods and drinks are offering something that people can happily identify with. The maxim, you are what you eat, appears to be ringing true, and therefore eating creative, interesting, and unique foods can infer that you too are creative, interesting, and unique. So to make the most of this trend, by all means, share your product or brand via social media in a consistently unique, interesting, and aspiring way. However, I'm also going to urge you to take it even one step further, because as Grant suggested, you've got to make sure that your online posts live up to your real product experience. And while online pictures may seem all-encompassing, one thing is missing, the tactile and sensory experience of a real product or place. 
Ironically, the more removed social media makes us, the more we crave deeper involvement in our product choices. We all want to experience that the people, places and philosophy behind a product or business. And this creates a value-added opportunity. To engage people's senses via an experience can be a powerful motivator to purchase. And bricks and mortar restaurants, cafes or bars can leverage this. They can use the photogenic strength of their food and drinks to fuel demand amongst customers. So they have them literally queuing at the door, waiting to be immersed in the promised product experience. Now, Grant does this superbly at Gin Lane. You can have the promised multisensorial cocktail experience in his bar at Gin Lane. But he takes it even further by offering a more in-depth experience through his Gin School. In these sessions, he welcomes people behind the bar to experience the authentic ambience and creativity of being a mixologist, even if it's just for a few hours. They get to understand the history of gin, its origins, its botanical building blocks, and mix their own unique gin cocktail in real time. And they willingly pay significantly more for this experience than the cost of a single drink. So, for product makers and brand owners, your challenge is to shift from a single, low-cost product transaction to a more rewarding, premium product experience. That may happen in the store environment you sell in, a farm gate, a cellar door, or a local market. Or it can happen where people first trial your products, in sampling giveaways, at a festival, or related event. For those regular supermarket-bought brands who are struggling to escape from the shelf, I see them leveraging pop-up shops to evoke a richer brand experience beyond the simple scanning at the grocery cash register. For example, the ice cream brand Magnum regularly runs pop-up shops in London, New York, and Sydney. The latest local version was called the Magnum Pleasure Store, and it ran in Westfield shopping centres. This pop-up shop allowed you to customize your own Magnum ice cream with the chocolate coating of your choice and add different toppings of fruits, nuts, and confectionery like rock salt, rose petals, or pistachios. And they also provided Instagram booths to capture and share images of your customized creations. And all of that for a cost of $7 for one ice cream. That's about a 230% price markup on the usual cost of a Magnum bought in your local supermarket. Now that's the value of e-tertainment. So what could offering a multisensorial, Instagrammable experience do for your product, brand, or business? How could you step away from the regular store shelf, even for a short-term promotional period, and offer a unique creation, customization, or eating experience that people would willingly pay for. I'm going to leave that with you as food for thought. Well, that's it for episode 13. I'd like to thank my guest today, Grant Collins of Gin Lane, for sharing his inspiring mixology journey with us. If you would like to see his experiential cocktails in action, all the links are in this episode's show notes. Thank you once again for listening. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to share it with a friend. And do join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. 
Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 